Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mimosas with Moms podcast. I'm your host, Abby Williams. I'm going to try and keep the podcast as normal as possible over these next couple weeks, as I know that everything else that we're listening and reading and talking about in the world is coronavirus. Um, The coronavirus just has us so many different emotions right now, just heightened emotions. Um, It's very stressful. It's very scary. It's very serious. I hope everybody is doing their part with the social distancing and keeping those who are vulnerable safe, especially our doctors and nurses and the people in the healthcare industry. My heart goes out to them and their families. Um, Just huge, huge thank you. Also, the people that are working in grocery stores, our garbage men, you know, the people that are like really on the front lines, the janitors, the cleaning crews, um, you know, there's just like so many people out there that have to be working and keeping us going. So let's all do our part and step back. It has been so extremely hard, especially for me, like in this postpartum period. I know a lot of you are going through that as well or you're just an extrovert and you need people. Um, We all need our support system. We want to hug our parents and our support systems and our people and our friends. You know, we want to be out being social. The warmer weather is coming. We want to be on the patios and, you know, out at restaurants, having a good time. So many events are being canceled and it really does. It stinks. But I think that if we all do our part now, we can hopefully get ahead of this and the curve can start flattening. Um, So let's all do our part. I've also posted to my Instagram page um, an account that some of my friends put together um, for different hospitals across the country and different clinics that are running low on supplies. So make sure that you are looking out for that. Um, If there's any way that you can help, please do. And just hang in there, guys. We are in this together, but distant. And the hugs are going to be so good when this is all over. So hang in there. I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for each of you. Um, And if you need anything else, please reach out to me on Instagram. Um, So I'm really excited today to welcome Tarot Clavel. Um, she is a comparative international education specialist. She raised three children and traveled all around the world, educating them in China and here in the United States. Um, and she writes all about it in her book, World Class. I'll link that at the bottom of this episode. And she loves talking about the intersection of parenting, education, and globalization. And really, in our conversation, we really talk about the importance of education but more importantly, the importance of valuing our educators, which I think right now we are really going to have an eye-opening experience at this. Um, A lot of our schools are closed currently. Our school is closed for the next three weeks. I wouldn't be surprised if it gets extended through the rest of the year. Um, And now we're all at home homeschooling our children and picking up the slack. Um, Our educators and my son's school is doing a fabulous job of online learning um, and keeping things going. And I am so, so appreciative, even more so than I've ever been for our educators right now. Um, 
So big shout out to all the teachers that are juggling teaching from home with their own kids, keeping curriculums going. You are so appreciated right now. I cannot tell you enough um, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. And I am so excited to have this, to share this conversation that I had with Taru prior to this whole Corona outbreak with you guys. Um, And hopefully we can all do better at appreciating our educators and pouring into the education system. So be sure to go find Taru on the links linked at the bottom of this episode. She's on her website, taruclaval.com. She's on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, um, and her world-class book is on Amazon. So Be sure to scroll down to the details of this episode and find them. And let's get started. Cheers. So, Taru, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Abby. Yeah. Um, so kind of tell us a little bit about your motherhood journey so far and your journey overseas, your education for your children. Sure. So I have two boys and a girl right now. They are 15, 14 and 10. So I have a high schooler, middle schooler and an elementary uh, school girl. But when we first had kids, when I first had kids, um, we were given the opportunity. I was in New York City at the time, but the opportunity came for us to move to Hong Kong. So that was when my oldest wasn't even two years old and my second was in diapers. And so we up and left and it started this kind of global journey. And we were in Hong Kong for four years from 2006 until 2010 and then in Shanghai until 2012. So that was for two years. Was that for professional reasons? It was. It was all for work opportunities that came up. Um, And then we went to Tokyo and were there for four years from 2012 until 16 and then moved back to the U.S. but to Palo Alto, California. We're there for two years and finally came full circle, came back to New York summer of 2018. Um, Yeah. So then I put my kids in local public schools where we were and I got a master's in comparative international education while I was overseas and I became an education journalist. And then my book World Class just came out with Simon & Schuster imprint Atria a few months ago. um, And it details my whole journey. And I'm happy to say it was an Amazon bestseller. So that's all good. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So kind of tell us a little bit about, I guess, the differences in the school systems between the U.S. and overseas. Yeah, so they're they're totally different. Um, I would say the 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 biggest differences that I think might be interesting for your listeners is the way the schools are funded. Um, So, you know, we talk about in the U.S. there's there's a lot of variation between the schools, like good schools, bad schools. And there's so many Mm -hmm. kinds of schools from 
parochial, private, public charter. And then you also have a big homeschooling movement now in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And the way that the U.S. schools are funded on average, and this is the public schools, is that you have 45% from your local district, and that's based purely on your real estate taxes. And then yeah. you have 45% coming from your state, and the remaining 10% is from the federal government. And so that's why, depending on what your real estate prices are, you could send your kid to a school that's very well-funded or not that well-funded. And the parents play a really big role in that because if you live in a more socioeconomically advantaged area where maybe you even have not only higher incomes, but maybe more flexibility with parent schedules, you can have parents donating so much money and time on top of the already high school budgets. Right. Um, and where we were in 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 Japan, for instance, it's kind of like the epitome of an equitable education. So the closest, the the best school is the one that's closest to where you live. Right. And it's pretty tremendous the way they do that. The teachers, believe it or not, are forced to move around not only um, within the school and grade. So you could be a first grade teacher and then a sixth grade and then a fifth and a fourth. You'll never be the same teacher for years and years in the same grade, rather. And you'll have to move schools within the district every two to three years. So you're not going to have a teacher, a school with really good teachers and a school with really bad teachers. Um, And then overseas too, the teachers are recruited from the best and the brightest out of college. And there's a lot of investment put into their professional development. So, you know, these are just some, some basic differences. And then um, a really huge one I would say is that there are much higher expectations. So um, an exam is administered by the OECD, which is a think tank based in France. And it's a test called PISA, and it's given to 15-year-olds all over the world every three years. And it tests for science, reading, and math. And what it showed for the 2018 scores, which just came out last year, and it was across 79 different countries and economies. And it showed that the U.S. students are literally, 15-year-old students are literally almost four years behind Chinese students in math. Four years. So that's like, it's crazy. super scary. It's really scary because when you think <laughs> yeah. about the future of our country, and unfortunately. And we're to think about our STEM field, science, technology, and yeah. um, engineering and math, and who are our science masters, PhD students, they're typically from Asia. Um, so these higher expectations are are able to be achieved because you have much more qualified teachers because there's a lot of, um, uh, I guess, professional development is the best way to put it, put into these teachers. But also you have teachers. And do you think who- that that's like happening like in the higher ed? Like is that they're the teachers schooling or is well, that the really, moving yeah. around or well that's well that's both so what they do right. is they it's a very respected profession right and so it's basically it's hard in the US to become a t- uh, a lawyer or a doctor as it is to become a teacher yeah and teachers in Japan for elementary school they are music teachers, art teachers, PE teachers, and swimming is required. So they actually literally have to be able to swim 50 meters of the breaststroke, freestyle, backstroke, butterfly, and they have to be able to 
keyboard, play the recorder, sing. They have to do twirls on the bars, and they have to be able to master and teach grade one through six curriculum. And the teaching itself, they they include tons about child development. It's not just theoretical. And once they get into the field, they're always paired with a senior teacher and mentor. And here you hear about first-year teachers burning out right away. And we have a huge teacher retention problem. Um, and you know, there's this saying, and it's horrible in the U.S., which is when you're in college, if you can't do teach, you know, if you can't hack an <laughs> economics or a government major, you know, go into yeah. teaching. And that it should is be kind the, of scary. I never really thought is. about it like that, though. You know, and yeah. and where should we be putting our brightest and our best? Probably within the medical field and within the teaching field. Yeah. Right. Um, right. And, and these are long-term investments that we kind of overlook. So there's there's a lot to be said for, and, and, and you know, I'll talk about the high expectations for another moment. And I talk yeah. about this in my book, World Class. My son, when he was in first grade in Shanghai, at a public school without heat, without running water in the bathrooms, okay? Yeah. Yeah. And he was kept after school one day, and I didn't know why. And I thought he was getting into trouble because in the U.S., you know, you're, it's, it's like a discipline case if you're kept right. after school, like you have detention <laughs> or something, you know, but he was right. in first grade. To make a long story short, he didn't get a 95% on his math quiz that day. So the teacher just kept him until as long as it took, which was like an hour until he understood the material. And it wasn't just that he went over what was on the quiz. She taught him more complicated materials to make sure that he really understood all of the concepts because math is cumulative. If you're not going to do well in math in first and second grade, there's no way you're going to do well in fourth, fifth, sixth, let alone algebra, um, trigonometry and calculus. So the teachers so the educators are, so, are just like very invested in the kids. Very, yeah. very. And they're supported by the community to do so. Right. And they're really respected. In Japan, the teachers are bowed to at the beginning and end of class and they're yeah. thanked. Yeah. And in China, they're saluted to at the front gate, literally. So it's a very different machine. And I wish that in our country, we would practice that higher level standard for our teachers, our students, and invest in our educators because it's not our fault. Fo- it's not their fault. We right. don't invest in them. And right. if we don't invest in them, I mean, you, why should we expect people to be martyrs because they're in the teaching profession? And it's- I just think that, like, now in the United States, anyway, I don't know if that's like the same overseas. Educators, especially like in elementary school, wear so many different hats now. You have so many different things going on here where they're expected to be the educator, the social worker, the nurse, the, you know, the school counselor, like they have to do all these different things. And like, you're not even being paid to do all these things. You're not being paid to do it. And most teachers have two, if not three jobs. Right. They're making basically minimum wage. They can't afford the cost of living. And it's it's not, you know, and it's on top of all these demands being made. They're not trained for what they're expected to do. Right. And their curriculum is constantly changing on them. And it's like, by the time they get used to one curriculum, right? They have to implement another one. And the reality is it's not just that they're suffering. The learning of our kids, our students are suffering. 
you know, and so why we do that? And it doesn't happen overseas. In Japan, the curriculum changes every 10 years. Yeah. And in China, it's every five years. And yeah. here, you know, if, if a teacher goes home, they're like, oh, I found a new app. It's so great. I'll use it for my kids tomorrow. Or I found a new workshop. That would never, ever happen in Japan yeah. and in China where there are such strong approvals and everything is so methodically, strategically, intentionally well planned out. Yeah. Um, and, and it, you know, th that isn't necessarily a great thing, but you're not going to have any haphazard, you know, kind of lack of alignment issues where the kids may be, may be struggling in the end. We just have to better support the system and our teachers and then our students. So what do you feel like the difference between like the individualized education plans and like, you know, the kids that are struggling or that have like learning disabilities and limitations, you know, like what are the differences between here and overseas? Well, that's a really complicated story, right? I yeah. would say that both Japan and China are behind, no question. Yeah, yeah. But the U.S. is definitely a mess. Um, we don't, True. you know, we don't, yeah. we don't support our, our students with, with learning challenges and, yeah. and we have those who, I mean, right. When you look at the teaching profession, the area that is most lacking are those who specialize in special ed. Mm -hmm. Um, and what you also have though, are teachers who classroom teachers who don't know, who aren't trained in how to work with students with those challenges. Um, and, and as a result, a lot of them aren't equipped to diagnose or help support those kids. Right. And then you have a lot of misdiagnoses as well. And this is a whole other area, um, which gets into the psychological and the mental health of our kids. Yeah. But you have kids who are over-diagnosed and over-medicated. Yes. And there's now just too much evidence that shows that they are basically guinea pigs and there's no way to get them off this medication. And it's like a chemistry, uh, like a, a chemistry experiment where the, the cocktail has to be changed all the time. And, you know, something that I'll say, and I'm not saying this is the hundred percent workable formula, but, you know, when I was in Asia, you know, they're naughty kids. They're naughty kids everywhere, you know, <laughs> and the kid who's naughty in first grade may not be naughty in third grade. It's, I know. You know and, and, and kids are like that. Let them I be know. kids. And suddenly here in the U.S., it's like if you cannot sit still and listen, you are automatically, you know, labeled as a child with some kind of a learning challenge. And, yeah. you know, and in Asia, it's those kids for maybe a month, a week, a school year, their desk is just right next to the teacher's desk at the front of the class. And no one bats an eyelash. No one says, oh, that kid's just a bad kid. Isn't going to learn. It's just no. And you know what? The kid who was an angel in second grade may turn out to be the devil in fourth grade. But you know what? <laughs> it's, it's true. <laughs> but it's okay. Let them learn and make mistakes and go through it. And we can't yeah. label them so extremely immediately. And yeah. so, you know, and the other thing I loved was we have, well, in the U.S., we deal with a lot of inherent bias, right? We see a child, we think a child can or can't do based on their parents, the color of their skin, the way they dress. I mean, we have so much prejudice here that that we that that doesn't work in such a diverse country. And what I loved is, is and and this is something that a lot of um, 
I found American or U.S. U.S. parents say, "Oh, well, in Asia, you know, they're all it's all homogeneous, and it's all it's all direct instruction and rote learning, and it's abusive. They don't have any fun." But no, actually, yeah. and they, they don't study. The quality of instruction is so high that they're not spending as much time studying actually in and out of the classroom. And they, students in the U.S. have shown that they feel that their environment is so much more competitive than it is collaborative. And in Asia, in East Asian countries, in China and Japan, they find that it's much more, believe it or not, collaborative yeah. than it is competitive. Um, and you just have all these kind of preconceived notions that that aren't actually true right um and so you know if 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 any work that can be done my work is to try to dispel some of the, those notions yeah and um oh this is what i wanted to say in in my son's school in shanghai there were lots of migrant children um migrant children and my son's closest friend didn't know anything about hygiene dental hygiene yeah. and his and his two front teeth were rotted away with cavities and he was still ranked the number two student in the class. So there wasn't that inherent bias. Like, you know, his parents are basically farm hands yeah. and they're on minimum wage. Um, there isn't even a minimum wage, but they don't earn very much in China, right. in Shanghai, but it's okay. It didn't matter because everybody was on board to get those children educated regardless of their background. We're like here, the lower socioeconomic status children are kind yeah. of left behind. And actually something yeah. else, another beautiful piece of research came out that showed that in China, the mindset of those kids who are socioeconomically disadvantaged have a po more positive growth mindset than those that are advantaged. Meaning I they, what that feel, is about. they feel that through an education working hard, yeah. they will they will reach that, you know, whatever academic or professional or other goal that they may have more than the kids who are even econ economically advantaged. Whereas in the U S it's quite the opposite. Those right. kids who are born into kind of like repeat the cycle. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and the study also showed that those who are socioeconomically disadvantaged in the U S if they were put into China, yeah. they would have a positive mindset and their academic outcomes would be higher than our most highly educated students. There has to be something else that's like driving these mindsets, right? Well, I absolutely <laughs> I'm like. What is this about? <laughs> I, you know, and 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 here's a great anecdote. I feel like when we came back to the U.S., my youngest, who was actually born while we were in Hong Kong, she started second grade, and she came yeah. home one day, and this is one of the public schools of California, and she said, "Oh, I'm just bad at math." And I looked at her, I was like, "This is what?" Because <laughs> you don't hear anything like that. In, 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 in Asia where we were. Yeah. Whereas here, there's so many excuses to be, I'm a math person. I'm not a reader. I don't read books. I'm not good at that. And you know what? That just doesn't I'm exist. I'm guilty of that for sure. You know? Like, I and, suck at math. <laughs> but you know what it is? Yeah. There have been studies that also show that if we say that, we're giving yeah. our children in the next generation permission to also be that way. Yeah. Whereas in Asia, it's the exact opposite. It's, well, I didn't get a great math education, so I'm going to make sure you are a mathematician expert level yeah. to their kids. And so it's, you know, it's, again, it's this inherent bias that we also pass on to our kids and teachers do it too in the classroom. They'll say things like, oh yeah, you know, I could never figure out puzzles. So it's okay if you can't, I totally get it. Yeah. No, it's no. <laughs> 
just work harder at it because, you know, everybody can master the material. It may just take different strategies and different levels of effort. And I feel like we kind of have some of those conversations on like our home where, you know, your classmates sitting next to you, my reading might just like come easier to them, but like you have to work harder. Yeah. And that's okay. And and that's totally okay. And so I love what you just said about uh, the classmates sitting next to you. Something that I also loved both in Shanghai and in Japan was that the, the seating arrangements in the classroom were very, very intentional and they were done in pairs. So the teacher would make sure that every student was balanced and complemented by the students sitting next to them. So one may have been better at math or better at reading and they would team teach one another. Yeah. And so you always had another built-in support system. It wasn't just about friendship or who would get along. It was really taking taking into account the learning that had to be done in the classroom. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. It, yeah. And it's a community, right? Yeah. You're building the community in the classroom and in the school. Yeah. So how do you feel like we can better support parents to have these like productive communications with the teachers, you know, where I feel like here and I know a while back when I had like my parent teacher conferences, I Mm -hmm. posted something on my Instagram and was like, you know, when you go into a parent teacher conference, are you going in to advocate for your child or are you like too afraid to be that parent, you know, who's... Yeah. Like jumping on the teacher. And I feel, and I felt like, you know, the majority were kind of responded to that, that they do not go in like guns a blazing, holding teachers responsible and, you know, whatever, because they're afraid to be labeled that parent. And I think Uh that there's like a fine line, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think that you go in like disrespectful with your teacher. You know, I think that we can empower our teachers and be advocating for our child at the same time. Like kind of how do you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I love talking about this. Um, And in my book, world class, I actually have, they're called text boxes, like separate areas where I talk about the parent teacher conference and tips on, on how to um, engage in that conversation. And to me, and I talk about this as well, the most important relationship for your child's learning, uh, formal learning, is the relationship between the parent and the teacher, yeah, and the teacher and the student, and then the student and and um and and the parent, right? So that has to be crystal clear, transparent, and always open and available. And that's difficult because yeah. teachers don't have a lot of time. Um, so how do you do that? The relationship is so important. And like you said, you don't want to go in with guns blazing because right. <laughs> they won. I mean, not only is the community small, you right. may have these teachers in your life for six, seven years, or if they go on to middle <laughs> school or high school, or if it's like a K through 12 school, 13 years, like you, you just, or you know, if you're if like it's a, me who has four kids and you're going yeah, to be with these teachers for the absolutely. rest of your life. <laughs> Exactly. It could be, you know, it could yeah. be this relationship. And if you live in yeah. a small town, yeah. you're living with these people for 60 years, right. you know? Um, so, so these relationships are super important. And the best advice I can give is you have to figure out 
how to communicate first and foremost, because some teachers, and I'm actually not a big fan of texting and online platforms um, because I find that people don't check them that often um, or they're not held as accountable. Um, But if that's the way, then that's the way. If it's email, texting, the online platform, notices home, a notebook, um, drop off and pick up, whatever it is, you have to know the best mode of communication or communications with the teacher. And then you have to get in with that teacher at the start of the school year. This is, this is marketing PR 101. (laughs) You have to maintain really strong relationships with your, with your classroom teacher and make sure that they know you are really invested in your child's education because if you're invested, they'll be invested. You know, if, if, if they think that your family like doesn't really care, then they're not going to be held that accountable either. Like, why should they care very much? And it's kind of a psychological thing. It's, it's unfortunate. I wish it weren't that case because I feel like those kids where I was in Asia who may not have had the same kind of supports at home still got plenty of attention in school. But in the U S it's, it's kind of a different story. Um, and I always say when you go in, especially to your first meeting, listen, 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 and then have all your questions and make sure by the end of that session, your teacher knows who your child is. Whatever kind of speed bumps your child may have had in the past, predict what they ha- will have going on um, in the future and be very strategic about what you're sharing as well, because you don't want to label your child as a problem child, as an annoying genius child, the family that is really annoying, um, the family yeah. that has crazy expectations that won't be met. You mm-hmm. have to be really cunning and smart about the way this meeting is is being held and always stay in communication with your teacher. Um, and, and in terms of getting information from your teacher, find out a how they like to communicate, yeah. what their experience is and has been, what the curriculum is, and how that and your child's progress will be communicated with the families. And this is another big one that I don't think parents really um, are aware of. It's when you get that report card, what does it really mean? Right. Because a lot of people and I've heard this across the board from parents, it's like, oh, my child is a straight A student or they're mastering all their, you know, on the competency based, whatever. But what does that really mean? Does it mean because it can mean I'll pull it into three different parts. Right. It can mean a they know the content. Yeah. B, they can apply the content, which is totally different from, you know, you can add two plus two, but can you go to the store and figure out what two pounds of apples plus two pounds of bananas is? You know what I mean? Can you apply that? And the third is how much of it is behavioral? You know, because you could have this angelic child who may be apparently trying really hard in school, but by fifth grade can't read or cite words, you know? So, so pull apart that grade and find out what it really means. And when you have this um, competency-based assessment, so it's, you know, reaching expectations, met expectations, exceeding expectations, how, and, and, this, is a, and I, this is a gripe I have, who can really assess for exceeding expectations if they're not testing for that? I know. It's interesting that you say that because I interviewed somebody a while back that is like on the homeschool bandwagon. Yeah. She was saying something that like she doesn't like when her child gets straight A's. Yeah. Then, you know, there's where is there to go from there? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. So I don't want my child to get straight A's because that means that they know everything. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and I've met I with want some you very, to keep yeah. going. Yeah. I've met with some really high profile celebrity parents that have interviewed me too. And, right. and they say the same thing. They're like, right. I actually don't respect, and I talk about this in world class. I don't respect some of my, my kids' teachers because my kids get easy A's. And, yeah. um, you know, and when I feel like I was growing up, you know, if I got an easy A, I didn't respect the teacher. And you didn't like, learn. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this is- What did a, I get out of this? <laughs> what, well, yeah. Like, why am I yeah. going to listen to this teacher if it's so easy to dupe him or her, you know? Yeah. And um, and the other thing is, so this story that I told that I love. So when we moved to California, there was a, uh, a an instrument requirement and my middle yeah. child took up the trumpet. And I got to tell you, there's not a lot of talent there. So I used to make him stand in the closet <laughs> to practice because I was like, I can't, we can't I do, can't this, do this You know, I was like, beep, beep. I was like, oh God, at least it's like a noise, but it's not a pretty noise. And I understand there's a learning curve. So I'm, I'm saying I wasn't very helpful in this, but he got a C in music and otherwise he had straight A's and he got a C and I literally thanked the music teacher because I was like, if he doesn't practice, that's what he should get. There shouldn't be some gratuitous straight A, you know, social promotion stuff going on. Kids have to work hard to get their grades and they have to be challenged and learning should hurt. Right. You know, when I go to my exercise classes and the teachers are so motivational, like, you know, if you're not sweating, you're not working hard, push yourself. And that's how you get through life. Like, we should be telling our kids too. Like your brain should I love be hurting. That. Yeah. No, you know? I love like, that. <laughs> if you're just having fun at the end of the day and you're like, yeah, I, you know, didn't learn anything or didn't feel like I did. That's yeah. a problem. Yeah. No, I think that that's so powerful and so true. And I think that like we just kind of get hung up, especially here. I don't know about overseas or different countries, but just kind of this like competition of, you know, the perfect child, my child's involved in everything. And, you know, is exceeding and doing great and winning awards and getting straight A's. And, you know, this picture perfect, you know, look at what a good job I'm doing parenting. And it's like such a disservice, like really. Well, It's a huge disservice because something else, it's a huge difference between, between our country and many is that we are an exceedingly capitalistic country. We are exceedingly competitive in the outside world. And we label a lot of success, unfortunately, in my opinion, based on how much money you make. So suddenly, like if you make a lot of money, you're well-respected, which is crazy because a lot of professions (laughs) that don't make a lot of money have really talented, smart people. You know, and, you know, and then in this country, though, we give these participation trophies. And I and I wrote about this in world class, my son, because we used to come back to the U.S. in the summers. And my oldest was in this chess tournament and he came home with he was like seven or eight years old with this trophy that was literally bigger than he was. I mean, I know it was like, no, it was bigger than half of him. It was huge. Yeah. And so his younger brother said, oh my God, you know, you won the tournament. That's amazing. And he was like, no, he's like, did you come in second? No third no and he's like fourth he's like yeah how many were in the tournament four you know what i mean it was like so yeah he wins this life trophy and we actually keep it to like joke around about because right. it's like it's ridiculous like why we put our kids in this crazy competitive world yeah. yet we're anti-competition in the schools we're not setting our kids up for success yeah. um and the other thing i'll say is there's been so much research that shows the greatest path to success in life is through positive habit, right? So yeah, 
and it's discipline. It's working hard. It's not IQ. You could be the smartest genius, but if you can't apply that discipline, it doesn't matter, you know? So it is, but we, we are hung up in this country with our kids have to have fun and they have to be free (laughs) and they can write a poster about multiplication if they don't want to study multiplication. But the reality is if you kind of indoctrinate and entrench your kids with a habit of discipline, sitting down and getting work done, right? How many times do your kids have homework, you know, especially in high school when they like screw around after school and then by 11 o'clock they're panicked and what would have taken (laughs) them 15 minutes to do when they came home? Yeah. It's not going to take them three hours yeah. because they're exhausted and they've been on social media all night long. It's like if you just instill a lot of discipline and habit when they're early, yeah. you don't have to face a lot of these problems later on. And other countries get that right. Right. We do that yeah. at my house. Like you walk yeah. in off the bus and it's to the kitchen table, snack perfect. time. You know, I don't homework. like to use the word perfect, but yeah, but that's. And then we go into you know, reading before dinner. Exactly. But if you don't have those habits, yeah. right? It, and, you know, as we all know, it's really hard to change a habit once yeah. the bad habits become routine. Yeah. And especially when you're younger. Yeah. And a lot of it's like for me, because like by time, you know, it's like after dinner time, I'm exhausted. Yes. It's about efficiency. I cannot read to you now because I am so tired. So like we have to do this before. Yeah. I mean, I've told my kids like I'm an off button. Like I'm off. Once dinner hits, like that's it. I clean up dinner and like then we can watch a show or play a board game or have fun. Yeah. Yes. I totally, I'm right there with you. After we get all of our stuff done. Yeah. And I think, I think it's hard for parents and I'm, you know, and and my kids aren't that young anymore, but it's really hard to fight those battles because your kids may hem and haw initially. Yeah. But have those battles because the battles later on when they don't have to listen to you, especially when they hit middle school or high school and their friends become so much more important, those battles later, you're not going to win. But when they're little, (laughs) they will listen to you. Yeah, that's true. You know? So Taro, kind of tell us uh, where my listeners and followers can find you. Yeah. So you can find me online on my website, Teru yeah. Clavel, T-E-R-U-C-L-A-V-E-L.com. Yeah. And I'm on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Yeah. And you can find my book, World Class, uh, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, a lot of online booksellers, and hopefully at your local independent booksellers, because it's important that we support them as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and you know, take your kids to the library. I, I hope my book is at your local library. If yeah. not, then please tell them to get it. Um, and I and I hope you enjoy my book. And I do a lot of speaking engagements. So find me. And um yeah, I, I really enjoy talking about this stuff. So if you have any comments, questions, further discussion material, things that you agree with, disagree with, yeah, definitely get in touch with me. I love this conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, cheers to education. Yeah. And I hope, you know, I don't know, the U.S. gets their act together. <laughs> I do. And parents have so much power to do it, especially really when do. the kids are young. It's yeah. You know, and that's another thing, and and this is maybe a good a good way to end is, yeah. you know, parents in Asia often get like vilified for being like tiger moms and this and that, but the yeah. reality is they're just looking out for their kids' educations, yeah. and 
And U.S. parents can do the same in a, in a very smart way where they're just looking out for their kids' best interests, yeah. you know? And, and it's not only about sports like soccer mom yeah. and fencing and chess club. It's, you know, get, get, their, get their foundational, fundamental learning right. And I promise you the future of their academics and and um, outcomes and happiness will definitely be be benefited. Perfect. Thank you, Terrell. Thanks so much, Abby. Did you enjoy this episode? Please be sure to leave a five-star rating and review, and be sure to tell your friends. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Mimosas with Moms, and you can email me at the number 2mimosamoms at gmail.com.